Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibut First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. It was a big weekend, Ottawa. The top civil servant gave evidence about the Jody Wilson-Raybould affair. We note that Michael Wernick backed up what Rusty Yabo told us on episode 87 of Mi'kmaq Matters. There was a toxic relationship between the only Indigenous person in the cabinet and Carolyn Bennett, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. And we had that United We Roll convoy arriving in the nation's capital with members of the alt-right Yellow Vests Canada in tow. On the one hand, organizers say they're sticking up for the oil patch and its workers. But along with the smell of diesel, there was the smell of anti-immigrant, anti-indigenous points of view. One of the speakers, Faith Goldie, was booed off the stage by indigenous protesters who called her Nazi scum. If you don't like our country, leave it, she told those indigenous people. Later in the show, we'll hear from a group that monitors Yellow Vest Canada, which includes both indigenous people and those who hold racist views about us. But first, to an event happening in Ottawa this coming week, a pivotal court case in the ongoing legal challenges against the Halibut enrollment process. Justin Philip Abbott versus Canada and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians is the latest in a series of cases brought by the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland. This case deals directly with the supplemental agreement, the way it was ratified, and the point system that caused more than 10,000 people to lose their status in the Halibut Band. The hearing takes place on Tuesday, February 26th at the Supreme Court of Canada building at 301 Wellington Street in Ottawa, next door to the Parliament buildings. The hearing starts at 9.30 Eastern Time, 11 in Newfoundland. If you plan to attend in person, you should arrive between 8.30 and 9 to allow time to get through security. There'll be live streaming of the hearing on the Mi'kmaq Matters Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters. More on that later, but first, here's Jamie Lickers of the law firm Gowlings WLG, lawyer for MFNEN, talking about the issues in the Abbott case. They really center around the main criteria in in the Halapu enrollment process uh, specifically what's referred to as the community acceptance criteria. Uh, and many of your lister, listeners will, will recall that we've previously had a case dealing with the self-identification criteria. That will not be at issue in this case. What will be at issue will be the community acceptance criteria, both under the original agreement and how that criteria came to be modified under what is now known as the supplemental agreement. So there's a couple of things at at issue on Tuesday. The main issue, of course, is is the reasonableness of the changes that were made to the community acceptance criteria through the supplemental agreement. And the the folks who went through the process of applying for membership in the Halapu First Nation will be very familiar with the types of changes that happened between the original agreement and the supplemental agreement and the additional information 
that non-resident applicants were asked to provide following the negotiation of the supplemental agreement and the way in which the evidence required to meet the community acceptance criteria changed after the negotiation of the supplemental agreement. And so the request to the court is to review primarily two matters. First, the way in which the parties negotiated those amendments under the supplemental agreement and the way in which those those amendments were approved, and then the reasonableness itself of the criteria that resulted following the negotiation of the supplemental criteria. And after the determination of the reasonableness of the community acceptance criteria and the process by which the parties amended the original agreement, of course, we're also seeking specific relief to Mr. Abbott's case, and that is a review by the court of the reasonableness of the decision that was made on his application and the question of whether Mr. Abbott received appropriate procedural fairness in the way that that decision was made. Right. So that's the what we commonly refer to as the, the point system. Um, the requirement to have 13 points under their, under that system, which aspect of the arrangement of the, of those terms are you challenging in that uh, first part of your argument? So, so there's a couple of aspects of, of the criteria and, and I'll call it the revised criteria after the supplemental agreement that, that we see as, uh, as problematic. The first, of course, is the distinction in the way that applicants were treated based on whether they were resident in what came to be known as a Mi'kmaq community in Newfoundland uh, versus being non-resident in one of those communities. And, of course, your listeners will, will be quite knowledgeable about the heightened evidentiary requirements for individuals who were not resident in a Mi'kmaq community in Newfoundland and the requirement for those applicants to have both frequent communications and visits with members of the group, as well as active participation in the social and cultural life of the Mi'kmaq communities. And and what, from our perspective, what's problematic specifically about that criteria is the type of evidence required to demonstrate frequent visits and communications and active participation in the community, but also the fact that those communities were created by and identified in the original agreement. Before 2008, when the parties negotiated the original agreement for the creation of the band, there was no list of Mi'kmaq communities in Newfoundland. You couldn't know before 2008 if you were visiting or communicating with someone who was a member of the Mi'kmaq group of of, of communities in Newfoundland. It simply, there was no list. There was no identification of those communities. So in our view, it, it, it's a bit, it, it was a bit arbitrary if you were communicating with family and friends in Newfoundland before 2008, those people could have lived in one of those communities or they might not have, depending on which communities came to be included in the 2008 agreement. So really it was, it was a matter of luck, whether, oh, hey, I happened to talk to a friend from high school and great, look, he now, it turns out he lives within the boundaries of a recognized Mi'kmaq community. Well, that re- wasn't recognized before 2008. Are you challenging the right of the parties uh, to negotiate the supplemental agreement 
or are you challenging the components of the supplemental agreement? Both. Um, and I think in terms of the powers of the party to negotiate the supplemental agreement, the, the parties, of course, had the power to negotiate uh, amendments to the original agreement and to enter into the supplemental agreement. The key question from a legal perspective is, did they have the power to approve the, the amendments that they negotiated without having those amendments ratified by the membership of the FNI? Um, the, the components, the requirements for membership that were contained in the original agreement were ratified by the members of FNI. They were ratified by the people whose rights would be determined based on that criteria. And then significant changes were made to that criteria through the supplemental agreement, which were never ratified by the people who would be affected by those decisions. Now, you've gone through um, uh, the pre-hearing process with uh, with the other parties, FNI and Canada, and you know uh, before the hearing what their argument is um, in response to your arguments. And... Um, what can you tell us about their arguments in a nutshell? So n most of the arguments are, are unsurprising, it's very similar to the arguments that were made in response to the, the Wells application and the issues raised in, in those applications. Of course, both the FNI and, and the Attorney General are arguing that the amendments um, to the original agreement that were made in the supplemental agreement were reasonable. We're saying they're unreasonable. Of course, they're saying they were reasonable. Uh, the primary argument being made for the reasonableness of those changes is a result of the number of applications received and questions around the credibility and legitimacy of, of the entitlements of the applicants. Uh, and of course, they're arguing as well that, that they had the power to make those changes without having those changes ratified by the membership of the FNI. And they're actually making a, a fairly interesting argument in, in that regard and saying that the directive, which changed the way that non-resident applications were evaluated and, and changed the weighting of certain evidence was not in fact an amendment, it was simply a directive that was issued to the Enrollment Committee. And they point to a particular provision in the original agreement that allows the parties to issue directives. And, and so their argument is that it was not an amendment at all. We're, of course, arguing against that. We're in court on Tuesday, and um, do you have a sense of how um, how long <clears throat> the matter will go on Tuesday? Is it uh, an all-day um, case, do you think? I assume that it will go for the full day, and I, I actually am of the view that it will be quite tight uh, on Tuesday for all of the parties to get through their submissions. We anticipate, on behalf of the applicant, about three hours of, of argument, assuming that each of the respondents needs an hour and a half to two hours to respond, and then some time for a reply. It's going to be a very full day in court. So I guess there's a possibility you might need uh, another day if you if you don't finish on Tuesday. Our our hope uh, our hope is that we will get through all of the submissions in in one full day and. Uh, obviously, judges are, are often very accommodating, and if it's a question of needing an additional half hour or an additional hour, often the court will just continue to sit a little bit later than it normally would. Um, it didn't make sense if, if we only needed another hour beyond day one to ask for a two-day hearing. So 
we had a similar similar length of arguments in the wells applications and and in the foster and house applications as well we were full day full days on both of those applications so i suspect that that the parties will get through their submissions on tuesday jamie lickers of the law firm gowling wlg Mi'kmaq Matters will live stream the Abbott case from wall to wall on Tuesday. Join us at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, 11 in Newfoundland. Federal court has issued an order setting out conditions for our live streaming. One of them is that the video must be deleted from our Facebook page no later than March the 8th. The complete order is posted on our Facebook page. The Oil Sands and Mi'kmaq people, it's a complicated relationship. As Mi'kmaq, we have a duty to be protectors of Mother Earth. Yet many of us earn our livelihoods from the environmentally destructive oil sands. And if we don't work there directly, there's a good chance we have investments in the oil sands through our pensions or RRSPs. We're all implicated. Last week there was a demonstration in Ottawa in support of the oil sands and its workers. It was called the United We Rule Convoy. But as we saw in the reporting from the event, there was a lot of Trump-style rhetoric coming from participants associated with Yellow Vest Canada, who had a major presence. Much of the talk was directed against immigrants, but there was lots of anti-Indigenous talk also. Concerned about some of the extreme commentary from Yellow Vest Canada, three people have set up Yellow Vest Canada Exposed to monitor the online chat of the Yellow Vesters. I talked to one of them. She prefers to be identified only as Liz because of incidents in Western Canada where some critics of Yellow Vest Canada have been harassed and threatened. Our version is largely based on um, immigration. Um, there's a, a very strong message of anti-United Nations. They feel that the United Nations are going to decide who immigrates, um, how many, where, um, and that our borders are being erased. We're losing our national stuff. We're losing our sovereignty to the UN. Um, some of them actually believe that the UN are going to replace our armies and our police forces. It's interesting when Pat Burn, well, Pat. Uh... King was interviewed in um, in Ottawa. He went off on immigration, and the reporter asked, "Well, what does that have to do with uh, the oil and gas uh, issues?" So uh, there, I get the sense that it's not there's no central leadership or organization. No, there, there, there's absolutely no central leadership. You're 100% you're right. And so what you see in the various groups is going to differ. If you look in groups like green groups in Alberta, it's largely anti-immigration and oil and gas. If you look at groups in Ontario, it's almost entirely anti-immigration. If you look at groups out east, there's some some discourse about resources, but it's again very largely about immigration. So there, there's there's a difference between you know geographically between the, the resource discussion, the, the discussion on oil and gas, agriculture, etc. But the one consistent message is anti-UN and immigration issues. A lot of the immigration issues are largely anti-Muslim. And that's just, I mean, we've got, we've got mountains of evidence for that. It's very much an anti-Muslim sentiment. But they've also expressed um, some pretty horrible ideas toward other groups as well. So we've seen racism 
against um, Asians. We've seen racism against First Nations. We've seen very homophobic statements. We've seen very misogynist statements. Um, it pretty much runs the gamut of what you would consider to be alt-right. Mm-hmm. Anything that the alt-right is sympathetic with, that's, that's totally fair game with these people. Now, the the indigenous angle is kind of interesting because you get some com- comments on there, anti-immigrant comments or anti-refugee comments saying that until we can look after our own, we have to reduce or cut off this uh, immigration. And they use, for example, uh-huh. you know, these uh, these indigenous people living in poor housing conditions and our war veterans, until we look after them, uh, we should cut off the, uh, you know, immigration. And then you have people come on and say, well, these natives... You know, they're you know this. You get the standard native, uh, anti-native diatribe in response. So there is a bit of a discourse back and forth on uh, on the indigenous angle. Absolutely, and, and I mean, there are a lot of folks involved in the movement who are indigenous. Um, there are a lot of folks in the movement who are indigenous oil patch workers and work in agriculture. Um, there's there are folks of all walks of life in this movement. But the problem is that this movement welcomes and attracts those extremist elements. So those extremist elements are going to be the ones to kind of trot out those higher tropes. One of the things that we've noticed is that when it comes to the racism against indigenous folks, because that is something that is, I mean, it's just something that's kind of accepted in Canadian society, right? Um, it's, it's less called out. Right, it's it's not as prevalent, it's not as out there as the anti-Muslim and anti as and the anti-immigrant sentiments. But I can guarantee you, if somebody starts to if somebody starts a, a post about you know uh, the the poor housing conditions on reserves, that's going to be trotted out. Yes. Um, it, it's it's even people who have good intentions. Like I think one of the examples I sent you was somebody. Um, talking about those, those, those horrible housing conditions mm-hmm. and the comments that they were met with were, were pretty disheartening. They, they, were, they were pretty horrible. And they range from the, the usual myths and misunderstandings that we see so often to outright racism. Probably the worst example that we saw was when um, the convoy rolled through Manitoba and on the outskirts of Winnipeg, there was a couple of groups that um, met them on the highway. Um, our understanding from what they've told us, there was maybe a dozen of them. There were people from Great Plains Resistance, which is um, a, a, a largely resource-based um, Indigenous rights. Um, there was folks from um, uh, Fascist Free Treaty 1. Uh, which is a, an anti-fascist organization in Winnipeg. So all of these folks met. Um, they met uh, on the highway to meet the convoy. They worked very well with, with, with law enforcement, with RCMP. RCMP shut down one of the lanes of the highway, and the convoy was allowed to go past. So it was really nothing. You know what I mean? There was a banner. There were some flags. There was a little bit of yelling back and forth. But overall, it was, it was pretty tame. It was pretty mild. But as a result of that, there were countless comments calling to, for, for the convoy to run them over, hit them. Um, on, pe- on people's live feeds, as this was happening, people were telling them to you know, run over them. Um, 
I was hearing a live feed. I was watching the live feed as it was happening. And one person on, I heard somebody in the background of the live feed say, um, uh, on the radio say, run over them. And somebody in the background said, oh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to dirty up the vehicle. I mean, these were, these were land defenders or water defenders or people who are largely focused on resources and, and, and indigenous rights. And if we're talking about a Canadian's first quote unquote movement, we should be including those people and we shouldn't be treating them the way that we are. We shouldn't be speaking about them the way that we are. But the social media reaction to that was really horrible. Now, you mentioned that the the commentary uh, varies from region to region and that uh, if, we're lo- if we're looking at the LFS comments from uh, Eastern Canada, from Atlantic Canada, uh, they mm-hmm. would be uh, different from uh, out west. And what, what do you see from from that region of the country, from the Atlantic? Mostly it's anti-immigration. Um, there is uh, there's definitely some pro oil and gas, which we're not we're not arguing against. We we don't have issue with people, you know, our personal politics as a group. There's there's three of us that that are on this project. Our personal politics on resources and sustainable energy, and oil and gas aside, we are not taking a position on people fighting for a right to you know make a living and to feed their families. What we take issue with is, is the racism. And if you look, I mean, specifically the Newfoundland and Labrador page, it's it's pretty horrific. There's not very much immigration in the, in fact, no. the government policy is trying to encourage immigration because there are not enough workers. And, you know, it's a bit mysterious why there would be this opposition to immigration in, in that part of the country. Well, I, I think it's just because they, they've kind of bought into this idea that Islam is bad. You know, I, I mean, it's 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 just an idea that they've that they've completely bought into. In that part of the country, you see the anti-immigration comment as being specifically anti-Muslim, but not only immigration that yeah. they're concerned about. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that is the main thread between all of them, right? That is the main that is the main thing that you're going to see in each and every group is is anti-immigration, anti-Muslim. Liz from Yellow Vest Canada Exposed. Before we go, an update on our item last week about the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland special meeting held this past Saturday. The motion's passed. MFNEN will begin the process to become a non-status band and will apply for membership in the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. Allison Baker is the technical producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Celebration time used with the permission of Mi'kmaq artist Marcus Goss. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Listen to Mi'kmaq Matters on Bay of Islands Radio and Norris Point in Rocky Harbor. Tune in on the Voice of Bombay and in St. John's. Catch us on CHMR. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.